Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, and I highlighted verses 4 through 6, but it's really going to be verse 4 today. Let's read the text from verse 1 through verse 4, and then ask the Lord's blessing. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Amen. Father, thank You for this opportunity to be together and to open your word before you. We ask that you would uh, teach us this morning, Lord. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law. May your people boast in you alone. We ask that you would do this in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through the beginning of Romans chapter 8, and I pointed out that Romans chapter 8 is a link back to the end of Romans chapter 5, because Paul is talking about the theme of justification primarily in this book of Romans. That's, that's his theme, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul in chapter 6 and 7 took a pause to deal with two important issues that uh, he knew would come up among the people, one relating to a misunderstanding of grace. If we have the grace of God, which is superabounding, can we just continue in sin? And he says, absolutely not. We have died to sin. We cannot live any longer in it. And then he deals with the question of the law in chapter 7 because it seems that he is setting aside the law and Paul says the law has an important place. The law actually shows us our sin. The law points out our sinfulness and causes us to cry out to the Lord, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. And as you read through chapter 7, and especially verses 13 through 24, as we spent some time a few weeks ago, this understanding of who we really are, that the light of the law is exposed in us, feels very condemning. And so Paul is saying, remember this, this truth. We are not condemned anymore. We are not condemned. Those who are in Christ are not condemned. Condemned. The sentence of condemnation which was pronounced against us has been removed because Christ has paid our sentence for us in full. He, he's laid down His very life for us where we deserved to die. And so the law no longer condemns us. It's no longer holding us down. It's no longer against us. We have been freed and Paul says, really, the work of freedom, you need to understand, is not a work that you've done for yourself. Let's give glory to God. This work is a work of the Spirit of life who is in Christ. 
He is the one who has made us free from the law of sin and death. That means the principle, the governing power of sin and death. We all were under that governing power before. We were only in the flesh. We were given over to the lust of the flesh and every passion that our sinful flesh had, which was stirred up by the law, just produced more sin and death in our lives. It was a a cycle that was vicious and that could not be broken. But the Spirit of life, who is the governing power, the greater governing power than the principle of sin and death, He has taken up residence in us and He has delivered us from that power of sin and death. You are free now from the penalty of sin. There is no more penalty, which is to say there's no death for you to die. And there's no power over you anymore to live in obedience to sin. You have a new master. God is now your master. Righteousness is now your master. So let's give glory to the Spirit of life who has breathed out His life upon us. Just as He did in the creation account, He has breathed into the darkness of our hearts and He's brought the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ into our dark hearts and made them light in Him. And then he says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin. Or as a sacrifice for sin, Christ condemned sin in the flesh, in His own flesh. We had no ability to save ourselves. We were held down again by the law, thoroughly condemned without any ability to do a spiritual good in the sight of God. And God, in His mercy, His tender mercy and grace, did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He sent His Son, not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was as one who appeared to be a criminal hanging on the cross with two robbers beside Him. He appeared to be in sinful flesh, but he was sinless. He was born sinless and he lived a sinless life so that he could represent us adequately, so that he could stand in our place and die the death that we deserve to die. And that's where we stopped last week, kind of mid-thought. Verse 4 is a continuation of verse 3. And as you'll no doubt have noticed as we've been studying Paul's writings here in Romans, he likes to use commas a lot, doesn't he? He he makes long sentences that are connected thought by thought by thought, kind of like an onion that is opening up layer by layer. And it's glorious to see it, but it's too much to take in all at once. And so we're doing it in bite-sized chunks. This morning we're going to look at verse 4, and we're going to look at um, really two points, two points as to what the purpose of this freedom is that has been purchased for us by the Spirit of life in Christ? Why is it that God has sent His Son to condemn sin in the flesh, to free us from the penalty of sin? So there's two points. One is the purpose of our freedom. We're going to see that in verse 4. And also the profile of the righteous. We'll also see that in verse 4. So two points, the purpose of the freedom, the profile of the righteous, and then next time as we get into verse 5 and 6, Lord willing, we'll look at the 
preoccupation of the righteous and the proof of our position. But for today, let's just look at these first two points and see what the Lord has for us. What is the purpose that Christ came for in condemning sin in his flesh for us? Verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Greek reads like this, in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. There's actually no mention of the word requirement there in the Greek. So what is the righteousness of the law? We have to understand what that is in order to understand what it means that it's fulfilled in us, right? And I think it's important that we remember back to Romans chapter 7. In fact, as we are learning together, there's a lot of times when we're going to be referencing back to material we've already covered, but the Lord is building more and more upon His doctrine, and it's important to see all these connections. In Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Paul said this, Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The law, remember this, is a direct reflection of the character of God. It is a direct reflection of His character. He is holy, that is, He is altogether separate from sin, and He defends His holiness and promotes His holiness and His honor. He's just, which is another way of saying He's righteous, His judgments are always right. Everything he does is without fault. And he himself even defines what is right. He is just. And he is also good. His law demonstrates his goodness. His law is good and defines what is good, what is profitable, what is beneficial, what is excellent, and what is joyful. All these are characteristics of God. In fact, in, proper, in theology proper, you have kind of two major categories for his attributes, those which are communicable and those which are incommunicable, meaning those which are shared with the creature with us in some measure. Those are the communicable attributes. What we're talking about here would fall into that category, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his mercy, his truth, all those things, the moral attributes of God. And then there are the incommunicable communicable attributes, the things that make God uniquely God that are not shared with us as they are in fullness in Himself, like His eternality. He's not bound by time like we are. His immutability, He's unchangeable. We change all the time. His all-knowing, His all-presence, His all-powerfulness, all of these things are the the attributes of God, but in the law we have His holiness, His justice, His goodness, which He means for us to understand in a measure. So the righteousness of the law, you could say this, is really His own character. It's His own character. Now, getting back to our translations, because most of these translations um, include the word requirement. They read, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, or so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so, how is it that the translators used this word requirement when the word that's actually used in the Greek is righteousness? 
Well, the word righteousness, dikeoma, means that which has been deemed right so as to have force of law. It is that which is right in itself, and therefore it is enforceable as law and requirement for others. That's the idea. That's why the righteousness of God's law, His own character, is something that He is communicating to us and is a requirement for the creature. So, what the text is saying here is the righteous requirement of the law is this. Obedience. It's obedience. Very simply, God wants obedience. And think back to the beginning, to the creation account, and how man was created, we know, in the image of God. He was created in order to bear the image of God in the earth. That's another way of saying to reflect something of the character of God, the attributes of God to the earth and to others. He was to reflect something of the character of God and His dominion and how He was to have leadership and control over uh, the creatures in His fruitfulness and multiplying as He was to do throughout the earth. I want to look with you at some verses which really speak to this question of what the law requires and an expansion of this, this basic notion of obedience. Obedience. Let's start with Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we were in our corporate reading this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is really a wonderful summary of the intent of the law and what it requires. This is the Shema that Israel would recite frequently about the Lord being their one and only God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Or, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone is another translation for that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You see, this is really a, a restating of the very first commandment that God gave to the people through Moses at Sinai that you shall have no other gods before me, before the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall not have any other gods before me. Here's another way of saying that. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart. He will occupy the first position in your heart. There will be no other that takes the first position like the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 10 really restates this in what's called the essence of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, listen to this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth, with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart 
and be stiff-necked no longer. You see, the Lord is teaching the people, in order to love God with all your heart, for Him to occupy the first place in your life, you must circumcise the foreskin of your heart. The hardness of the human heart must be cut away. You cannot honor the Lord and serve Him and love Him with a heart of rock, a stone. That heart must be removed. Be stiff-necked no longer. And then you come over to chapter 30 now, where he addresses this point of circumcision again. And look what he says in verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. We cannot circumcise our own hearts. Israel was told, circumcise the skin externally as a sign, as a sign of an internal cleansing that needs to take place that only the Lord our God can do when He removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of love and faith toward Him. So the first requirement of the law is always to love the Lord, but to love Him from the heart, with the whole heart. And there was another relationship that the Lord was concerned for man to honor as well, wasn't there? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, "...you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people." But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You will love your neighbor as yourself. So we are to love the Lord supremely, that he would occupy first position. And drawing from that, we now are to love our neighbor with the same care and attention that we give to ourselves. Here's another summary statement of what the Lord requires for us in the prophets. In the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, or justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There is a wonderful summary statement of what God requires from us, from humanity, from His people. God requires that we do justice, that is action, right actions, one toward another, that we love mercy. What is that? That's a desire of the heart. That's an attitude of the heart. That we would show compassion to others who do not deserve it just like the Lord shows compassion to us who don't deserve it. And that we would walk humbly with our God. We recognize that God alone is God, and that humbles us. It brings us low before Him. We're talking about attitudes of the heart. So we are to do what is just. We are to have right actions one toward another, but that must flow from a heart of love for God, humility before God, and a love of what He loves. Mercy, loving kindness. When we get to the New Testament, you might ask the question, well, what is the requirement of the law in the New Testament? Does it change? And of course, we know that it doesn't. When you get to Matthew, 
chapter 22, which we read for our call to worship, and this conversation that the lawyer has with Jesus, the lawyer who asks Jesus, what is the great commandment? Teacher, tell us. And Jesus, rather than speaking anything differently from what we've already read, he affirms the Shema. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These two commandments, loving God and loving neighbor, are like hooks. They're the primary commandments. And everything else that you read about in the Old Testament in terms of commandments, statutes, ordinances, they all hang from those two primary commands. So if you fulfill the two primary commands of loving God and loving neighbor, you've also fulfilled everything else that hangs from it. That's the idea. Paul affirms the same thing, and it will affirm the same thing in our study of Romans in chapter 13 coming up when he says this in Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. See, Paul is citing the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, our relationship with others. And he says, do you want to understand how to fulfill all of those very simply? It's just this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Why? Because love works no harm toward a neighbor. If you love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself, you won't commit adultery against his wife. You won't steal from him. You won't murder him. You won't covet what he has. All of that is easily resolved by just loving him the way that you love yourself. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was addressing a Jewish misunderstanding of the law with regard to neighbor, this very question. Because the Jewish rabbis had taught, well, we know that, it's, that we must love our neighbor. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, we just read that. But they taught that it was okay to hate your enemy. And Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 44, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Be like your Father in heaven. He loves his enemies, so you love your enemies. He does good to those who don't deserve it. He sends rain and sunshine on the wicked. And here's his concluding statement in verse 48 of chapter 5 of Matthew. Therefore, you shall be perfect. Here's the requirement of the law. Be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect in this way. Love the way that God loves not the way that you think that you should love or with your human love, 
Don't follow the letter of the law or the wisdom of men and redefine who you say your neighbor is. Follow the spirit of the law and love the way that God himself demonstrates for us. Another way of saying that is be an image bearer. Fulfill your creation mandate and show forth the character of God in all the earth. Copy him. And it was toward these quote-unquote spiritual leaders of Israel who were supposed to know these truths and teach them to their disciples that Jesus was most indignant and those whom he indicted with the most uh, vengeance. He says here in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. A woe is an exclamation of grief and distress Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. There's nothing wrong with bringing your herbs and offering them. There's nothing wrong with a ceremony per se if it's undergirded with the weightier matters of the law. If you don't neglect those things, what are those things? Justice, there's righteousness again, right living one toward another, mercy, an attitude of the heart, and faith, an attitude of the heart, believing God. Those have to be the foundation that undergird all our action. Otherwise, your religion is empty. It's meaningless. You're in darkness and you don't know God. In Luke chapter 11, the same account of this discussion, but from Luke's perspective, in verse 42, Luke eleven forty-two, he says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So you see the theme. Right living is a requirement obedience to the Lord, but it must be undergirded by a heart of love for God, a supreme love for God, and a love for neighbor as oneself. That is the requirement of the law. Um, There's one other passage I want to show you that I just think summarizes this so wonderfully. Again, from Paul in Galatians chapter 5. Listen to how Paul really summarizes this idea of what the requirement of the law is in Galatians 5. Starting in verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And the background here, by the way, is you have a church who heard the gospel of Christ, the true gospel, and then they quickly departed from it. They, they trusted in something other than the work of Christ alone. They, they, the Judaizers were teaching you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law of Moses. If you want to truly be saved, yes, trust in Christ, but also do these other things. And Paul is saying, look, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Why? Because now the gospel is not the gospel anymore. Now it's Christ and something else, which is no gospel at all. If you have your trust in anything but Christ, you are believing a false gospel. 
And I testify again, verse 3, to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. That's right. You wouldn't just have to do the circumcision. You'd have to do everything perfectly to keep the law. You who have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. You've never actually had true grace and salvation if you are turning away to trust in the flesh. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. That's the key. Faith working through love. Faith toward God, love toward God. Everything is driven by love for God. It's the fuel which compels us in the Christian life. It's what constrains us to to do what is pleasing in His sight. Love for God. So, what is the righteous requirement of the law that Paul is talking about? He's talking about a, a perfect obedience from the heart, a heart of love for God with faith in God that spills over as love to your fellow men. And that really was the reality of life for Adam and Eve when they were in the garden, before the fall. They loved God. They had fellowship with God and communion with God. And the man and the wife loved each other the way they ought to, with the right roles, honoring each other and serving each other as the Lord has asked them, had asked them to. But that fellowship with God, that love for God and for each other was broken when sin entered the world. Man has never been able to keep the laws God requires in his own strength ever since. That's the story of the Bible. God requires a perfect obedience. Man cannot provide that perfect obedience as God requires. He cannot image God in the earth as God requires. The image of God has been shattered in him because of sin. So God in his grace formalized his law at Mount Sinai through Moses. He did it in writing on tablets of stone. Of course, we know from Romans chapter 2 that the work of the law is in the heart of every man. Everyone knows that God exists. Everyone knows fundamentally what is right from wrong. But here God really amplifies his character and his will in writing at Sinai. And he gives the law to them not as a means of salvation because, remember, he had already brought them out of Egypt. He delivered them through the hand of Moses, and then he brings them to Sinai. He already brings the salvation to the people, and then he brings the law and requires that they observe it. But, of course, we know from our study that the law was really just intended to show them their own sinfulness and their need for salvation. And so he gives Israel a sacrificial system, and he, he shows the people their need for atonement for their ongoing sin. And his law pronounces a double-edged sword regarding his law. Really, two things. One, there is blessing for perfect obedience, but there is also cursing for disobedience even in one point. You read Deuteronomy chapter 28, and the first 14 verses describe the, the blessing of the Lord upon His people for obedience, for a full and complete obedience. Then the next 53 verses talk about His cursing on those who disobey even in one point, this holy, just, and good law. 
So the righteous requirement of the law, we need to think of really is in, in two ways or twofold. One, there is a perfect obedience that's required. Two, there is a complete punishment that's required for every disobedience. Both are required. And yet no one could keep the law. From the common person all the way up to the leadership in Israel, the prophets, the priests, the kings, not one could keep the law as God required. That's why the Scripture says there's no one righteous, not even one. And the sacrifices continued year after year after year. And King David, knowing the futility of the sacrificial system, writes in Psalm chapter 40, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, speaking to the Lord. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. David is speaking, but he's speaking prophetically of the Messiah who is to come. The one who is going to come to do the will of God perfectly. To keep the righteous requirements of the law because his law is written in his heart. He loves his law. See, we could never fulfill the law, brothers and sisters. It only condemns us. It only holds us down. It dominates us. It will not release us from its grip. We know from Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. It's not possible to gain any kind of righteousness through law-keeping. So in mercy and grace, he sends his son to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. He comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, though he is sinless himself. He gives himself as an, a perfect and suitable offering for sin. He lays down his life as a sacrifice for us. He stands in our place as a condemned criminal. He is ridiculed and humiliated like you cannot believe. He's spat upon and mocked. He's beaten beyond recognition. The scripture in Isaiah says that he was marred. His visage, his appearance was marred more than any man. You wouldn't have recognized him after he was beaten. And then if that weren't enough, he takes the full wrath of God all of the sin of his people of all time, and he bears that hell himself. He is roasted in fire as the Paschal Lamb it was in Exodus chapter 12. He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned our sin and took our punishment so that we could be free from the penalty of sin, death. Friends, is this not good news? This is the gospel message. That means good news. He condemns sin in the flesh for us and for no reason other than because he decided to set his love on you and me. There was nothing in us to commend us to God. No inherent goodness that he looked on and said, I'm going to select him or her. No, we all are sinners and condemned, unworthy enemies of God. And it's because of his great love that overcomes our status as enemies that we can be saved. So he condemns sin in the flesh through his son for us. But that's only sufficient to remove our death sentence. That only keeps us out of hell. There's something else that's required in order that we stand before the presence of God fully accepted. And what is that? Righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ 
So at the same time he takes your sin, he also gives you his very righteousness. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the wonderful exchange of the gospel. And both of those truths together are washing our cleansing and our robe of righteousness which Christ puts on us is called our justification. That's the legal declaration of standing that we have before God, a right standing. And that's what we saw in Romans 3 and 4. But here's another way of saying what I just said. Christ fulfilled the law for you. He fulfills the law for you. He met the requirement perfectly. How? Both by living a perfect life of obedience to his Father, always doing what pleased the Father, which he then credits to you by faith as if you had obeyed like he obeyed. That's your righteousness before God. And then the other side of the coin is he dies a substitutionary death for you so that you can no longer be charged with guilt before the throne of God. Your hell has been averted. That is your forgiveness and your cleansing before God. And you receive all of these truths by the gift of faith. Amazing. Now, here's where it gets even more amazing. The Lord doesn't stop there. That's not the end of the story. That, this is where Romans 8, 4 picks up. That. That's a purpose clause. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, this word for fulfilled is important. It means to make full, to fill up, to carry into effect or bring to a realization. The word is used with imagery that's very helpful. Two examples. One is, it, it's the imagery of filling up a net, a fishing net, till it's crammed full of fish and cannot be filled any fuller. Or, it's used of <clears throat> filling up a hole that's dug in the ground until that hole is all the way filled up to level ground. The righteous requirement of the law is filled, being filled in us. There's a progressive idea here is the key to remember. Paul is not talking about the law being fulfilled for us. That was completed by Christ. That was a one-time act that he did for us at Calvary. He's here talking about something that's happening progressively. God sent his son to die for us in order that God's own holy, just, and good character, the righteousness of the law, which is always expressed through a heart of love to God and toward neighbor, would be filled up in his people progressively until it is full in measure. Do you see what he's saying? He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about freedom from the power of sin and death, which is our holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. That's the requirement of the law. Be like the Lord. This is the second stage of our salvation, if we think about it in three stages, justification, sanctification, glorification. Christ has accomplished our justification. Now he is accomplishing by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life, our sanctification. 
This is a progressive sanctification. Yes, we've been set apart already by God in his mind and legally pronounced not guilty, approved, accepted fully by him in his son. But now he is setting us apart, sanctifying us practically in in experience, in life. He's making you more holy in your practice. That's what he's talking about here. Is this something that we've heard about before in our study of Romans? (laughs) Many times, right? Many times. I mean, this is the wonder of Scripture. He, He says the same thing in many different ways, I think because we're slow of heart. And he is gracious with us to help us understand the fullness of his salvation. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, that's part one, it's justification. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved in his life. That's sanctification. That's the part we're talking about here this morning. That the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Or take it in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, or leading into 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? God is concerned with how his people live, what their life is, what their practice is. Verse 4 of chapter 6. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's sanctification. Um, Chapter 7, verse 4, and this is not exhaustive. I would commend a rereading of chapter 6 and 7 and look for this because it's everywhere. Chapter 7, verse 4 Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. God wants us to be fruitful. Now that we're justified in Christ, we are to be fruitful in him. Or verse 6 of chapter 7, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, held down by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. There it is again, serving in the newness of the Spirit, walking in newness of life. We're not under the dominion and power of the law anymore. We are under grace. In fact, we are under the Spirit of grace, who is the operative ruling power and person in our lives now. Sanctification, progressive sanctification is what Paul has in view. And he says that righteous requirement of the law is to be fulfilled in us. Who's the us? He qualifies that and he says it's those who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We talked about this a little bit previously because in the New King James, the back half of verse 1 has the same phrase that we have here at the back half of verse 4. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But I want to expand that a little bit for us this morning. The word walk, again, is a general word that describes one's pattern of life. It describes how a person conducts himself regularly. What his or her habits and practices are. You could call it one's trajectory in life. If you look at a stock market chart, for example, there may be many ups and downs, but all of those ups and downs, if you were to zoom out, have a trajectory to them. They're either headed on the upward trajectory or on the downward trajectory. That's a walk. That's a practice of life. What's the overall direction of your life? 
And he says, those who walk according to. Now, this, some of this is detailed, but it's so important, I think, because it really helps us with a full-orbed understanding of what he's saying. He uses the preposition according to in Greek, kata, which is used in a variety of ways, but in this particular case, it's used to denote coming from the place through which something is done or extended. Coming from a place, in other words, an origin, a point of beginning, and extending out from there. Paul is talking the language of nature here, is, the, is what I want you to pay attention to, of origin or nature. Uh, good fruit comes from a good tree, doesn't it? We're taught that by the Lord. The nature always determines the outcome, the pattern of life, the walk of the individual. So those who walk according to the flesh are those whose pattern of life originates where? In the flesh. And as you'll recall from chapter 7, when we talk about flesh in this context, he's talking about the domain or the realm of the flesh, that which is unredeemed humanity in us, that which has been corrupted by sin, that which we have from our first birth in Adam, what is earthly, what is not spiritual, the place where sin dwells, where nothing good dwells, which practices evil, which is governed by the law of sin and death, sold under sin and totally given over to it. That's the flesh. That's the domain and the realm of the flesh. In other words, those whose natures are governed by corruption, it's just another way of saying an unsaved person, those who walk according to the flesh. And Paul is saying God's character his character, the, the, the requirement of the law or the righteousness of the law is not being worked out in those people. It's not being worked out in those who walk according to their fleshly nature. Whose pattern of life is a practice of and a love for their own sin. Who only know how to operate in the realm of the flesh. God's character is not being worked out in them. But his character is being fulfilled in those whose pattern of life is a practice of and a love for righteousness and truth. Whose origin is not flesh but spirit. We are born of the spirit. So we walk according to the spirit. So the first point again is our purpose in our salvation is not just that we'd be forgiven, but that we be holy in life, that we resemble our God and reflect His image in the earth. The second point is the profile of the righteous. What does the righteous person look like? Here it is, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Same preposition. That means those who originate from the Spirit. And I want to give you three kind of ideas to think about with regard to this walking according to the Spirit. What does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? Well, it means, first of all, that we live and practice our nature. We live and practice our nature. Those who are born of the Spirit are the only ones who can walk in the Spirit. That's our new pattern of life. A good tree makes good fruit. It can't make bad fruit. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The speech 
belies the heart. What's really there underneath in the heart comes out in the mouth. Maybe not right away, but over time, that's the pattern. That's the walk of the person's life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, does not practice sin, is what he's saying. For his seed, the seed of God, remains in him, and he cannot sin, cannot practice sin, because he has been born of God. Those who are born of God practice righteousness. They walk in the Spirit. So I want you to understand, Paul is not describing two classes of Christians here. Some Christians who walk according to the flesh sometimes and walk according to the Spirit other times. He's not talking about that. How do we know? Because he's describing nature according to. Those who walk according to the flesh are unsaved. Those who walk according to the Spirit are saved and born from above, from the Spirit. There's no command here. Paul is not saying, I want you to walk according to the Spirit. He's not saying that. He's saying what is really just a statement of fact. Those who walk according to the Spirit. They evidence that their nature is from God. Very simple. Yes, Christians can act in the flesh, can't we? We, we know our own sin. We can act and we, we can commit sin often, but we don't practice sin anymore. That's the key. Our walk is not according to the flesh. We don't love our sin like we used to. So the word walk is really the key. It always denotes a general practice. It doesn't talk about every particular step that we take on the road. And, and Satan, our enemy, would point that out to us, wouldn't he? He'd say, look at your sin. Look at all your sins that you commit. You're always failing God, and you call yourself a Christian? Where do we come back to comfort ourselves knowing that that's not true? We, we're not condemned anymore. We come back to these texts. Christ is our righteousness. He has paid it all for us. Our walk now, our general practice and trajectory in life is holiness. We're not condemned for every little sin because he's already paid all our sins. The key is we love righteousness and that is the new pattern of our lives. So there's no such thing as a Christian who walks according to the flesh. We live and practice what is our nature. That's the first point of what it means to walk according to the Spirit. The second is to walk according to the Spirit means that we walk the way that Jesus walked. The Spirit of God in Romans 8 and 9 is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. So those who walk according to the Spirit walk according to the Spirit that was in Christ. The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ is working out the Spirit of Christ in us. There's another way of thinking about that. It's just another way of saying what we've been saying. That God is working out His own character in us. The righteousness of the law is being fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. And how did Christ walk? With a perfect obedience and a heart of love for God and for neighbor. John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus said, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Christ loves the Father. John 14, 31, But that the world may know that I love the Father... And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. We know that Christ loves the Father, how? Because He obeys Him perfectly. 
Love and obedience are always connected. You cannot separate them. If you say that you love God, but you walk in darkness, you lie. The truth isn't in you. We are to love God the way that God the Son loves God the Father. And the way that God the Father loves God the Son. Remember, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He said that at the baptism. He said that at the transfiguration. God is pleased with God. God loves God with God's own love. He always seeks to bring glory and joy to the Godhead, the Father toward the Son, the Son toward the Father, and both of them toward the Holy Spirit. God loves God with perfect love. That is what we are called to do as we are now brought to the Lord. Love God with that love. And you, you might say, well, how can I love God the way that Christ loved God? Christ was perfect. That's right. Let's not forget where we've been, though, in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 5. Now the hope, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Shed abroad widely like opening a dam and floodwaters coming in and overwhelming the heart. How? By the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's how we love God the way that Christ loved God. We love Him with the Spirit of God pouring out God's own love back to God through us. Amazing concept. And to each other. So we walk as Christ walked. And then really the third way that we walk according to the Spirit is we walk enabled by the Holy Spirit. And that's really an overlap and been implied in what I've been saying. But just so it's clear, we walk enabled by the Holy Spirit of God. No one who does not have the Holy Spirit of God is able to walk according to the Spirit. That's obvious, right? Romans 8, 9 says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. He does not belong to him. His identity is not in him at all. The Spirit is the one who must recreate us as a new creation in Christ. He is the one who gives us the new heart that we read about in Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36 that we quote often. He's the one who puts the law of God in our minds and writes it on our hearts so that we don't need anyone to teach us the law of God. The Spirit of God is the one who teaches us the Word. We don't need a thousand different commandments enumerated on a page to know what we ought to do. The Spirit of God guides us and directs us and teaches us and helps us and, and convinces us of what is true and right and what is also what is and of also what is sin. We're not governed anymore by an external principle of obedience to an external law. That law God has now placed in our minds and on our hearts so that we love the law. We want to obey the law. And it's the Spirit of God who is empowering, who is fueling us along in this walk according to the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ fulfills the law in us, the righteousness of the law. So when we put this all together, and this was helpful for me, just the first four verses, what, are we, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? Because the governing power of the spirit of life has freed us from the governing power of sin and death. We're no longer controlled by our, our sin or death. It has no power over us anymore. 
And how did He do it? By uniting us to Christ and to His redemptive work so that His death becomes the death of our old nature, the flesh, and that His resurrection becomes the life of our new nature that we now walk in. The law couldn't save us because it was weak because of us. The law was perfectly fine, but it's we who, because of sin, are weak and not able to keep the law. So God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He sends His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemns the thing that condemns us, our sin, and fulfills the righteous requirement of the law in us, which means He forms God's very character in us, holiness, justice, goodness, all of which is enabled by the Spirit of God who gives us this new nature, brings forth the attributes of God in us, and causes us to walk more and more progressively the way that Christ walked. We will never reach a perfect image of Christ in this world. We'll never be sanctified 100% in this life. We will when He glorifies us at the end. But He does give us progressively more power and control as He governs us by His Spirit and we walk with our minds stayed on Him. God is filling up His own character in all who have been born of Him. He's raising up an army of little Christs who resemble Him throughout the earth. Is that not an amazing thought? That's what is encompassed here in this idea of the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us. Christ fulfills the law for us in order that the law might be fulfilled in us. This dynamic is so important to understand. He doesn't say that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled by us. He could have used that preposition. He doesn't. He says that the righteousness of the law would be fulfilled in us. So we're talking about concepts that are extremely important to understand because the gospel hinges on them. We are not trying to fulfill the righteousness of the law in order to gain acceptance with God. That has been won for us in Christ. He is the only one who could do it. But now that you are trusting verse 3 of Romans 8, what the law couldn't do because it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in His flesh, in the flesh, His flesh for you. If you believe that truth you now are able to live out verse 4. You are having the law of God fulfilled in you by the Spirit of God in obedience and gratitude for what God has done for you in Christ. You're not trying to earn anything. You're just trying to show your gratitude for what the Lord has done for you. You see the difference? We have the law fulfilled in us God is now, for the first time in our lives, giving us the ability to obey this law that we couldn't do before in ourselves. And he, we, he enables us to do it because He's given us Himself to be able to do what He commands, to love what He loves and to hate what He hates. So for those of us who are walking according to the Spirit, we now have a, a new relationship to the law, a new relationship to the law. It used to condemn us it used to oppress us, and we honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, we hated it. But now that the law has been fulfilled by Christ, and there's no more condemnation, you can say this with the psalmist out of a true heart. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Amen. You now seek to obey the law, not just its letter, but the spirit behind it. Through the agency of the Spirit of God at your heart, who is producing the very character of God in you more and more over time. We are not fulfilling the law for righteousness, but the law is being fulfilled in us from gratitude. From gratitude. You want to know what the big difference is between the world seeking to keep the law and how we seek to keep the law? The Christian's obedience is never to gain favor. It's always in response to the favor shown us. Always in response to what God has done for us. 1 John 4, 19, we love him, why? Because he first loved us. If you see the demonstration of his love by laying down his son's life for you, you live a life of gratitude in response to that. If you truly see it, the Spirit opens your eyes to see it. And our love is expressed in action. We obey his commands. Not perfectly, but we obey him through faith, trusting in him which credits us with the righteousness of Christ so that we are always accepted by Him. Hmm. Our obedience is no longer motivated by fear because perfect love, God's love, poured out in our hearts, casts out fear. Fear comes from not knowing that what we've done is ever enough, right? That's why the world tries to obey, but they never know if they've done enough. And they have a suspicion that they haven't. Even the most religious know it. And so there's constant fear. But we who can affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that Christ has already done enough for us. He satisfied the Father and there's nothing more that can be done to satisfy Him. Fear goes away and you are now free to obey God from a heart of gratitude. So the purpose of our freedom, really, holiness of life from a pure heart, a heart that He gives us, by the Spirit of God, the profile of the righteous, a practice of holy living from a new heart, all empowered by the Holy Spirit. Friends, the question is this, do we know that we've been born again? Do you know that the character of Christ is being formed in you? And can others affirm the same thing? Can they see that the life of Christ is being formed in you? You see, we evidence our new birth not by our profession. Just because you call yourself a Christian does not make you a Christian. Or even if you say that you believe all the right things, in other words, you're orthodox in your belief, that also doesn't make you a Christian. You are known by your walk, your practice, whether you are of the flesh or of the Spirit. Next time, Paul is going to peel the onion a little bit further, and he's going to tell us, exactly how we know that we're truly walking in holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you, Lord, for these truths, Lord, which we savor, we delight in, we we know to be true because your spirit has convinced us of the truth of Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And Father, we desire to be with you. We desire to walk with you. We see the wretchedness of our own flesh and we hate it. Thank you for those new desires. 
Thank you, Lord, that Christ has fulfilled the law for us completely. We are credited with his righteousness because we've been given a faith to believe. And Lord, now you are fulfilling your own character in us so that your purpose from creation would be restored in us in Christ, that we would be image bearers of God again, those who reflect the goodness, the holiness, the justice of God in the earth. Thank you for your wonderful work of grace in each one of our lives. Lord, we commit ourselves and entrust ourselves to you. Help us. You know that we're weak, but you are mighty. And as you do this through us, you bring great glory to your name. All glory and boasting goes to you, that the world would know that God is among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, would you please